The message this morning is entitled, To Have or Not to Have. It's the third in our Compassion series, Compassion by Command series. Some people come to church with the assumption that the job of the sermon is to make them feel better, comforted, and things of that sort. That happens sometimes. It's not going to happen this morning. (laughs) We come to hear God's word and to be confronted. And sometimes that's a healing word, an encouraging word, an uplifting word, a rallying word. Sometimes it's a confrontational word. And I am always very aware that I, the Bible says, that teachers have to, will give an account of what they've done. Uh, I am going to answer for everything I taught or didn't teach. And therefore, I have a commitment to uh, put the absolute premium on shooting straight, whatever the cost may be. And sometimes there's a cost uh, to that. Uh, but to never give in to sort of the pull to be entertaining uh, or to uh, soften things or things of that sort. I say all that to give you a warning that this message is one of those confrontational messages. But you didn't come here to get your ears tickled, did you? You came, right, to hear it straight, to hear the word. Uh, All right, and I appreciate that. Appreciate that. You're still going to love me after this, okay? But in about 10 minutes, you'll be able to hear a pin drop in the room, I suspect. This is a message, this is a series we're going through, and You can't say everything about the issue of poverty in one message. Of course, that's why you have a series. Uh, This message will make us perhaps want to right now get out and do something. And I'll have a few things to do at the end of this message. But its primary purpose is not to offer solutions. It's rather to make those of us who are affluent, who who live, who have a lifestyle that does not require us to worry day to day about shelter, food, and clothing. By world and historic standards, that means you're affluent. The whole goal of this message is to confront those of us in that category uh, and make us feel a little bit uncomfortable. And I'm talking about me here, okay? Just know that whatever you feel, I'm feeling too. Not guilty, as you'll see at the end of this message. Not condemned or anything of the sort. That is not of God. But just to broaden our awareness about this issue Our whole job is to bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That's that's our job description. We didn't get saved just to get rescued from hell. We're here to be God's co-workers, to carry out God's will on earth as it is in heaven. And what we've already seen in this series is that there are few things that are central to God's will being done on earth as it is in heaven as ministering to and helping those who are in poverty. So this is huge. This is very, very important. To have or not to have. I want to read a passage here, uh, which is Jesus on the judgment day, explaining to people who are, he's welcoming into the kingdom of his father, why he's welcoming them in. And we'll get to this passage at the very end of this message. I just wanted to sort of lodge it uh, in the cream space between our ears uh, to sort of simmer there uh, as we're going through this message. Jesus here says to these folks, here's why you're coming into the kingdom of my father. For I was hungry... I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty. I was that thirsty kid and you gave me something to drink. I was that stranger sleeping under the bridge and you invited me in. I was that naked person, didn't have any clothes and you clothed me. I was that sick person, that sick kid with the parasites and you looked after me. I was that judged criminal in prison and you came to visit me. To have or not to have. Pray with me here for a moment. 
Father, for every person in this auditorium, every person listening through podcast or television or every, any other means, I pray, we together pray, that you would help us to lower our defenses and let your word in. This word that is so important to you. This word that can be so liberating to those of us who have means if we'll just listen to it. This word that is so radically countercultural to the culture of America. This word that is so dear to your heart. Help us receive it. Let your anointing be here. Give it an authority that comes from you, not from any human words. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to start by showing two clips from a movie. I'm sure some of you have seen this movie. It's called A Boy in, in the Striped Pajamas. It's a hard-hitting, uh, very profound uh, movie. And just to set up these two clips, there's a family, a German family in Berlin uh, in the Second World War, and the father is a soldier in the Nazi army, uh, some kind of commander. He gets reassigned to now be in charge of a concentration camp where Jews are being exterminated. So the family has to move out of Berlin into the farmland of Auschwitz or Dachau, wherever this concentration camp was. But the family doesn't know that they're moving next to a concentration camp. The father doesn't tell them. And as the movie unfolds, the wife in particular begins to pick up cues along the way. And then there's a moment when she realizes what's really going on, the horror that's really right next to her house. The two scenes are this. The one scene is when they just moved into their very nice house, next to the concentration camp. But there's a forest that separates the house from the concentration camp. The boy is able to see the concentration camp from his window, but he thinks it's a farm. And that begins this process of, of, of realizing what's going on here. Then the second clip is just where the, the wife, uh, just because of the order of burning bodies, uh, it becomes undeniable that, in fact, this is no farm on the other side of the forest, it's something far, far more sinister. Let's watch this clip from the mother, or the, the boy in the striped pajamas. with who? The children. Over on the farm. Farm? I didn't see a farm. And that one too. You can only see it from my room. Hmm. And there are some children there? Yes, quite a few. Oh, that's good. So, I'll be able to play with them? I don't see why not. I'll wait a little bit. Just to see what they're like. Because they look a bit strange. <laughs> the children do? Well, and the farmers. What's sort of strange? I'm sorry. Vegetables. There. Bruno, have you unpacked everything? Because I think you should go back upstairs and finish off. Thank you, Mom. Bruno. I 
told you they were strange. Who? The farmers. They wear pajamas. Bruno, what are you doing? My ball went through. I was just getting it back. They smell even worse when they burn, don't they? What? sworn to secrecy. From your own wife? Yes. I took an oath upon my life. Do you understand? Elsa, you believe in this too. You want this country to be strong. No, Ralph, no. No, not that. How because I'm a soldier. Soldiers fight wars. That isn't war! It's a part of it. It's a vital part of it. The fatherland we all desire, all of us, you included, cannot be achieved without work no, such as I'm... this. Uh, Elsa. Elsa. Get away from me. Get away from me! <laughs> Grandpa's here. Here. <laughs> we'll be through in a moment. When the, the Nazi's wife really learns, really wakes up to the reality of what's going on around her, it immediately changes everything. It reinterprets everything. She can no longer deny the fact that she's living next to a concentration camp where people are being systematically dehumanized and massacred. She doesn't know what to do. She's caught in a system, this whole Nazi system, and that's why the, the sergeant, the guard, her husband, is able to turn it back on her saying, wait a minute, you want this too, the fatherland and all of that. She's part of a system. The husband won't change. She can't really leave. She, she'd be put in prison. Her family would be torn apart. But the system, the evil of the system as she lives in this throughout the rest of this movie, it erodes her, eventually driving her sort of crazy. It kills the family. The evil just seeps in. It tears her family apart. This woman, not knowing what to do, she has to accept the truth that she's part of a system that systematically massacres and dehumanizes people. And she has to face the arbitrary injustice that the only reason that's not happening to her is because she was born in a different place, belongs to a different ethnicity. Just because she's German and not Jewish, she gets to eat while they starve. She gets to live while they die. She gets to tuck her kids in at night while their kids get gassed and then burned. 
And the question she has to live in is what's she going to do about this grotesque, arbitrary injustice? On the one hand, she could just go along with it and live in the la-la land of lucky me. I'm not Jewish. And cash in on that. Or she tries to confront it. And as you saw here, she tries. I, I showed the clip because it seems to me that some of us are in a similar position to this Nazi's wife. If you don't worry about meeting your basic needs of food, shelter, and clothing day to day, then you are, by world and historic standards, as I am, you are affluent. Most people around the globe and most people throughout history have had to live daily in the question of how do we keep our shelter, have food, and have clothing. If we don't live in that question, we are privileged. Basically, if you're lower middle class in America, then you belong to the category of the affluent by world and historic standards. Roughly 75% of all Americans live in that category. 75% of, of, of most Americans live better than most kings have lived throughout history. And we have to, we who are affluent, have to face the, the, the reality, the reality that just on the other side of this forest, and maybe really right next door, there is a concentration camp of poverty that systematically dehumanizes and, yes, even massacres people. And it's not just on the other side of the forest. We have right here at Woodland Hills Church, despite the fact that we have such a suburban-sounding name, which I hope someday will change, Woodland Hills, where the wood, where are the hills, I don't know. But what we, were, we were supposed to be a suburban church plant. We never made it out there. God had different plans. But we here, as, in terms of people who attend Woodland Hills Church and are part of this fellowship, increasingly there are people who are at or below the poverty line and even people who are homeless. So it's not just on the other side of the woods. And I want to say to you folks who are at or below the poverty line that this particular message is not directed towards you. I think there's things you can learn from it, so don't tune out, but it's more directed towards those of us in this room or listening through podcasts who are by world and historic standards affluent, who don't live in the question of what am I going to eat or what clothes am I going to wear or what shelter do we have or are we going to have. And those of us who are affluent have to accept the truth, like the Nazi's wife, that it's really just because we're American or European or whatever you happen to be, and just because of the arbitrary circumstances you happen to be born into, that you are not among the class of those who are living in the question of how am I going to provide food, shelter, and clothing for myself and my family. For, for things that have little to do with me, I get to eat and other people don't. I get to have a nice house and other people live under the bridge. I, I have safety nets if things go wrong, but many people don't. I get to enjoy the dignity of being self-sustaining, whereas, as we'll see here in a little bit, billions of people have to live in the perpetual indignity of not being able to sustain themselves, having to live off of handouts. And so the question that we who are affluent have to ask is this, what are we going to do in response to this arbitrary injustice? Will we close our eyes and plug our ears and live in the la-la land of lucky me? Or are we going to do something about it? Now, maybe you're saying, look, at I, this isn't the la-la land of lucky me. I work hard for a living. I've worked hard to get myself out of poverty. I, 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 I have really worked hard to provide for myself and my family. And I don't doubt that for a second. You do work hard. 
maybe extraordinarily hard. And, and, and yes, there are people who are poor because they won't work hard. But it's also true that if you were, if you were born in different circumstances, it wouldn't matter how hard you worked, you wouldn't get out of poverty. And you might be starving to death. No one on the planet works harder than the women of sub-Sahara Africa who spend four or five hours a day making treks to the water hole to haul back water to their village, carrying kids on their back often, gallons of water on their head. Half the time they're sick because the water they're transporting isn't really drinkable. It's got parasites in it. And the other 10 hours of the day they spend working the fields or caring for others in the village. No one works harder than they do, but their hard work isn't going to get them the American dream. In fact, their hard work, at best, just helps them to survive for another day. So yes, you work hard, and that is praiseworthy, but it's also true that you and I got lucky. There's no reason why I wasn't born in sub-Sahara Africa, or why you weren't or born in some other circumstance that has a cycle of poverty which you can't get out of no matter how hard you work. We got lucky. Like the Nazi's wife, a part of us would maybe rather not look at that. It's not a comfortable thought. We don't want to look at the horror of the concentration camp that is just on the other side of the forest. We can't help but know about it, even as this Nazi's wife, she kind of knew about it. She picked up evidence, but she chose not to ask too many questions until it became undeniable. And we're sort of like this. We, we, it's hard to look at the reality of what is all around us. In fact, the truth is that we here in America, we're very good at hiding poverty from ourselves. In fact, the culture is somewhat structured to keep the affluent from having to look at poverty. I mean, I don't know if you've ever studied the suburban sprawl in the 1950s, what was called the Great White Flight, uh, where, where really where suburbia was created. It was mainly motivated by white people running from, from, from poverty and from crime and from non-white people wanting to create little oasises that they felt were nice, safe, and secure, their gated communities. And it was structured to keep that out of sight. A lot of our interstate system was developed with the intention of making sure that motors, when they go by the city, don't have to look at poverty. In some cases, the interstate was developed, it was largely by white people in power who constructed this. It actually relocated uh, minorities to keep them out of sight and dispersed the population. There's no clearer example of that than right here in St. Paul with the Rondo neighborhood in the 1960s. By my house, we celebrate every year Rondo, Rondo Days, where the neighbor comes together and celebrates a unity that they used to have. But a vibrant, historic, though largely impoverished African-American community was split in two so this highway could go down right through the middle of it. And there's plenty of other ways that that could have gone. As a culture, America is rather good at keeping the poor invisible to the affluent. But see, God calls all of us to open our eyes, to look to see, to be impacted, to care, to enter into the reality of what's around us. Like the Nazi's wife, we have to face the truth. We don't have to have the answers, and we don't have all the answers. In fact, I want to encourage you to not be too quick to jump to answers. Because there's a whole lot of evidence that suggests that when people who are affluent rush to answers, we answer them out of our own paradigm, and we sometimes do more harm than good. A really great book on that is the book, When Helping Hurts. 
And we don't want to be making those same mistakes over and over again. For right now, I want us just to live in the uncomfortable suspension of not rushing to answers, but yet feeling the pressure or the discomfort of looking straight at the concentration camp of poverty that is right on the other side of the woods and maybe even just right next door. So I want to give us a slice, a slice, a whiff, if you will, of the concentration camp of poverty on a global and domestic scale. I'm going to give you some statistics here. Now, I know statistics are somewhat limited value. Uh, stories are much better at kind of grabbing us. Got that. And there will be stories as this series uh, proceeds. But there's also a value in seeing the big picture. It's eye-opening, and I want us to see the big picture, and the only way to get at that is through statistics. I don't want you to try to write down these statistics or to memorize these statistics. If you want to do more uh, work on them, we'll have them posted on the website on a PDF file that you can download. Um, I researched this. They say that 48.5 or was it 54.3% of all statistics are made up on the spot. But these I really did research. I, I, the, the sources I used was a, a great book by, by Richard Stearns. He's the president of World Vision. Uh, the, the book is called A Hole in Our Gospel. I became aware that Marsha Erickson lent it to me, and, and I've just been devouring it. Uh, some really good research there, and some other sources like globalissues.com uh, is, is, is one source that he refers to a lot, and there's, there's several sources like that that these statistics come from. So let's start by looking at the disparity between the rich and the poor in the world. About one billion people on the planet, which is 15% of the whole population, lives on less than $1 a day. 2.6 billion, 40% of the Earth's population, lives on less than $2 a day. By comparison, the average income of people in America, when we live on $105 a day. And to see how unique that is, how privileged that is, consider that there's 5.2 billion people on the planet, 80% of the Earth's population that lives on less than $10 a day. Only the top 20% live above that, and the average American lives on $105 a day, 10 times that. We're in a very unique position, an oasis in the middle of an impoverished desert. Now, I've always heard that those statistics are not meaningful because they don't adjust for the cost of living. They look spectacular, but they over-sensationalize because they don't adjust for the cost of living. I encourage you, if, if that's a thought that you have, to visit a third world country. You'll find that stuff there is just as expensive and sometimes more expensive than it is here. You go to Haiti and a the, 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 the price of a loaf of bread is about what it is here. The difference is that when I buy a loaf of bread in Haiti, it's 1% of my daily income, whereas when a Haitian buys a loaf of bread in Haiti, it's 30% of their income. But it is meaningful to compare the actual dollar amount that people live off of, because stuff is expensive all over. Here's a, uh, a statistic that I found positively shocking. There's 1,125 billionaires in the world today, and they collectively hold more wealth than the wealth of, wealth of half the world's adult population. You talk about an unjust distribution of resources. The wealthiest seven people on earth control more wealth than the combined gross domestic product of the 41 poorest countries on the planet. I find that just to be mind-boggling. The top 20% of the world's population, those who live off of more than $10 a day, 
consume over 75% of the world's resources. Three-fourths of all the resources are consumed by the top 20%, and that is 75% of all Americans are in that category. The world's poorest 20% consume 1.5%. That's the purple on this graph. And the world's middle group consumes 20, about 22%. That's 60% of the world. Uh, it consumes 60% of the world's resources. No, wait, they, they consume 22% of the world's resources. That's the middle 60% of the Earth's population. As I, said, as I said last week, this gap between the rich and the poor is not shrinking. In fact, it's growing exponentially, faster and faster. Let's talk about the plight of the poor. One in seven people on the Earth, that's 854 million, do not have enough food to sustain them. That means 854 million people right now are in the process of starving to death. One in seven people. 1.1 billion people in developing countries have inadequate access to water, and 2.6 billion lack basic sanitation. That results in this. Close to half of all people in developing countries, or what are sometimes called third world countries, are at any given time suffering from health problems caused by water and sanitation deficits. As many as 5 million people each year die from health problems related to drinking unsafe, unhealthy water and the sanitation deficits that they live in. Uh, a number of experts argue that the lack of clean water is the number one problem facing the poor in the world. They drink stuff and it's got parasites in it and other things that just make them sick. And that contributes to the cycle of poverty because when you're desperately sick, it's really hard to, to work and produce much. It really wreaks havoc on the children because when children are, are drinking unclean water, uh, they suffer uh, dehydration, uh, perpetual diarrhea, they lose their nutrients, that, that uh, slows their, their mind and brain development, which in, in, in turn then... Uh, keeps the uh, cycle of poverty spinning over and over and over again. Children always uh, suffer the brunt of, of poverty, so let's talk about children. As of 2005, the last year I could find reliable st statistics for, there were 2.2 billion children in the world. Almost half of them lived in poverty. One in four children in developing countries are malnourished. Every five seconds, a child dies of malnutrition or some complication related to malnutrition. Think about that, every five seconds. Close to 11 million children in developing countries die each year before the age of five. This is equivalent to the entire child population of France, Germany, Greece, and Italy, or roughly half the, the population of children under five in the United States. Imagine for a moment what would happen if half of the children in the United States under the age of five died in one year. I think we'd be pretty radical at responding to that. But that, in fact, is how many die around the world. Just to, get, to give you a comparison, in the U.S. and Europe, two out of every thousand children die before the age of five, from some reason or other. In Sierra Leone, which has the highest infant mortality rate, 282 out of every thousand die. 2.2 million die each year because they're not immunized against very preventable diseases, like malaria and tuberculosis. We've cured these things but it doesn't do them any good because the resources just aren't there. They could be there, but the money goes to other things. This is the insanity. This is the insanity of the world. It's the, it's the clearest evidence that, that the system is broken. We're oppressed by demonic powers that keep us 
despite our best intentions from doing the right things. Consider this. This is, this is the definition of insanity in, in my mind. In 2008, the governments of the world spent $1.2 trillion on their militaries. Almost half of that was spent by the United States, States, which spent more than the next 46 countries combined. By comparison, the governments of the world spent $104 billion on humanitarian aid to developing countries. Do the math and you'll find that what that means is that the world last year spent 12 times as much on weapons to kill as we spent on assisting the poor. It is, I think, the, the, the clearest evidence of our, our insane oppression to the principalities and the powers. Throughout our history, we've always put a higher priority on killing our enemies than feeding our sisters and brothers. Something's seriously wrong. It's estimated that if a mere 5% of the world's military spending was given to the poor, it would be enough to, for a year, provide basic food, shelter, and clothing for the, the poorest billion people on the planet, those who live with less than a dollar a day. But we don't do it. And we could quickly come up with reasons why. Well, if we, give, if we back off a of military, blah, 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 blah. But see, that just shows it's a systemic issue. We're entrapped. The fatherland, you want this too. See, I got to live in a reality, and I don't know what to do about it. I, I'm not here to fix the world. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to solve everything. But I have to live in the reality that I benefit from the protection of an empire that spends more on military spending, uh, spends more on the military than the next 46 countries combined. And I don't know what to do about that, but it, 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 it adjusts my awareness, my mindset, just to know that. We need to know that. That's part of the reality that we live in, if you're here in America. But poverty is not just on the other side of the forest. It's also a domestic problem. So let's talk a little bit about that. In the United States, in 2007, the federal poverty threshold for a family with two parents and two children was $20,700. That's what qualified you for governmental assistance. Now, every source I checked agreed that no family of four could actually live on that anywhere in the country. And that in most areas of the country, you would need about twice that much to meet basic needs. But this is the definition that we have of poverty. So let's work with that definition, the one supplied by the government. By that definition, which everyone agrees is too low, 12.5% of the U.S. population, 35.3 million, lives below the federal poverty level. 13.1 million of them are children. Over a third. In Minnesota... There's 148,000 children who live in poverty. In Ramsey County, that's 19% of all children. In Hennepin County, it's over 14% of all children. They live in poverty. And as in every other state in America, poverty hits non-whites more than whites. In fact, in America, it's very hard to separate poverty issues from race issues. Consider this. 8% of white kids live in poverty in Minnesota. 20% of Asian kids, 26% of Hispanic and Latino children live in poverty. 32% of American Indian and 45% of black children live in poverty. Poverty issues are inseparable from race issues in America and in Minnesota. About three-fourths of Minnesota families living in poverty in 2007 had one or both parents working full or part-time. Getting a full-time job is not necessarily your ticket out of poverty. I encourage you to watch this film that we've, we've been sharing uh, during the uh, Compassion by Command series, Bless This Child. 
Because it shows you how simplistic that thinking is. In fact, in 2007, one-third of full-time job openings did not pay enough to keep a single parent above the poverty line. I was amazed. In 2004, I researched this. Uh, and Minnesota actually had the highest number of homeless working people. Because we, we, we had a lot of jobs, and people came for jobs, but the jobs didn't pay enough to get you into a housing uh, situation. The backup on government-subsidized housing is, is so long. And to get into housing, you've got to put down a deposit and first month's rent. Where do you come up with money like that when you're living day-to-day, hand-to-mouth? It's a cycle. It's just a cycle. Let's talk about affordable housing. Housing is deemed affordable if it requires 30% or less of a household's gross income. That's the government definition. 64% of those who live at or below the poverty line pay at least that percentage. Only 2% of families that make $50,000 or more pay that percentage. So here again, you can kind of see the cyclical nature of poverty. If, if a disproportionate amount of your limited income is going to just provide shelter, that means it's not available to go to other things that can maybe help you get out of poverty, like, like education and job training. Uh, to move up a little bit, no, all, your income has to go to just surviving day by day. The recent recession, of course, has hurt all of this immensely. The statistics I gave you were before this recent recession because there's not reliable statistics available right now in the light of this recession. But I just, on Friday night, watching the news, national news, found this interesting statistic. Right now, one in uh, every 136 homes in America is in foreclosure. That's by far and away a record. 425 homes in the U.S. foreclose every hour, seven every minute. 2.2 million homes have foreclosed this year. And here again, race plays a part. If you're African American or Latino, you're more than twice as likely as whites to lose your house, to have it foreclosed. You're half as likely to own your own home, twice as likely to lose it once you have it. And there's all sorts of reasons we can give for that. But if you go, just go on a map, do a map search in the Twin Cities of houses that are foreclosed, and you'll see that the majority are clustered in neighborhoods that are predominantly non-white. Race issues and poverty issues are quite inseparable. God's call for all who profess to follow Jesus is to look at reality in the face and realize that just on the other side of the forest, and maybe right next door, in fact, maybe sitting next to you in this auditorium, there is a concentration camp of poverty. We live in an oppressed, war-torn-apart world, spiritual war zone, where a good percentage of our sisters and brothers struggle just to survive day to day, and often that struggle is not successful. They die. And the only reason that we who are affluent are not among them is because we got lucky. We weren't born there in those circumstances. Yes, we work hard, but... In those circumstances, you can work very, very hard, and it doesn't get you where you got. Like the Nazi's wife, we have to respond to the grotesque injustice of our good fortune and ask the question, will we live in the la-la land of lucky me and close our eyes and plug our ears and just go along with the American stream, or will we decide to buck the system and face reality and do what we can do to act justly and to love compassion? For those of us who have committed our life to follow Jesus, there really is no, nothing to discuss here because it's so clear. His whole life is spent ministering to the poor and we're to follow his example. 
And as we've said a number of times, there's 3,000 verses in the Bible that talk about the priority of ministering to the poor by God's people. We are called to act justly, to love compassion, to walk humbly with our God. We're called to share his heart for the poor. We're called to care. We're called to submit all that we have to him, knowing that it belongs to him, and ask him how he would have us use our resources, time, and energy to address this problem. We don't have to have all the answers because we don't have all the answers. Our job is not to be wiser than other people in telling Caesar what he should do about the poor. That's not our job. Our job isn't to fix the whole world. You'll overwhelm yourself in four seconds if you think that's your, your, your job. Our job is simply to obey, to walk in obedience, to have a heart that's share God's heart for the poor and then walk listening to him as we dialogue with our community our kingdom communities, about how he would have us steward our resources. So I want to end by looking at very quickly at one passage of Scripture here that addresses the affluent, which is most of us. Paul in 1 Timothy says this, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. I want us just to hover on this, break it down a little bit. Command those who are rich. If you're lower middle class in America, you probably are in that category. You're in the top 20% of people on the, on the globe, so you're in that category. This word is to us, we who consume 75% of the world's resources. We're commanded not to be arrogant, which simply means to walk humbly, which as we saw two weeks ago means we collapse our judgments about this. Because those judgments... While there may be some truth here and there to, to some of them, they paint with very broad strokes. They're generalizations. They don't do a thing to alleviate the problem. In fact, what they usually do is simply insulate us from taking responsibility for the problem, leaving it to the government or something else. We're to walk humbly and not think that we know. We're to know what we don't know. And then Paul says, command them not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God. One of the ways the system, as we've said before, dehumanizes both the poor and the affluent is that with the affluent, it causes us to not trust God. Why? Because we don't need to. We got stuff. And that robs us of the joy of living simply. It robs us of the joy of trusting God. It robs us of the joy of living carefree because the stuff is uncertain, as Paul says here. You got to hang on to it. You got to cling it. You got to clean it. You got to work for it. And so we're reduced to, the system reduces us largely to treadmill, to, to mice on, 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 running on a consumeristic treadmill, chasing the ever-elusive American dream with the illusory security it provides. When Jesus says, don't be like the pagans who chase after stuff. No, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness, caring for the poor, and trust that God will add all these things unto you. Wealth is so uncertain. Put our trust in God. And then Paul says, surprisingly, for it is God who provides the rich with everything for their enjoyment. And here's the balance, the difficult, difficult balance. But this, it's such a necessary balance. God is not a killjoy who wants us to feel guilty for everything we have that someone else doesn't have. This passage says he gives us stuff for our enjoyment. There are some people who, and I have been here, when you wake up to the reality of the concentration camp of poverty that you're living next door to, you get a whiff of it and it wakes you up. 
Some of us are inclined to now start feeling guilty for everything we have that they don't have. We feel guilty because we're not there. We feel guilty because uh, we benefit from the unjust system. And right after feeling guilty, we go into cynicism, and right after cynicism comes judgmentalism. And you start judging people who don't make the sacrifices that you make. And that is as contrary to the kingdom as any sentiment, as any mindset, as any disposition could be. It's great to wake up to the reality. Got to do that. And breathe it in and let it impact you. But guilt is not a kingdom motivation. We have to remember that Jesus didn't spend all this time trying to make the world fair. Because he can't. He changed water into wine. At that very moment, somebody on the planet, I'm sure, didn't even have water. He allowed the lady to anoint his feet with that expensive ointment. Somebody in the world at that time was starving to death. What's with that? He went to parties with tax collectors and prostitutes and enjoyed the finer things of life. And he didn't seem to feel guilty about that. So, you see, that abundance, enjoying the fine things of life, that is actually closer to the kingdom in terms of the kingdom ideal than poverty is. And there's a place for manifesting that. But here's the balance. Jesus didn't stay at the party. He didn't stay at the wedding and keep on drinking wine. He got out there and ministered with the poor. That's the balance. It is a hard one to live. I, I, I have struggled in this for so long, and I don't think there is a clear-cut rule to live by that alleviates the question. We just have to live in the question. Here's, here's, here's a very simple illustration that helps me process this. It's like, suppose my kids, when they're younger, I give them a box of chocolate for their birthday. I want them to enjoy the chocolate. I don't want them to feel miserable with the fact that there are kids around the world who don't have chocolate. It's arbitrary, it's unjust, but right now I'm able to give you chocolate and I want you to enjoy it because I love you. Now, if I know that they have a friend who, whose family doesn't get any chocolate, maybe doesn't even have enough food, I'm also going to be even more concerned that while they enjoy the chocolate, they learn to share it with those who don't have chocolate. Because as much as I want them to enjoy the chocolate, I also want them to find the deeper joy of giving chocolate away because it's way more fun once you learn how to do it to give away chocolate than it is to eat it. Still, I want them to enjoy the chocolate. Our Father loves to bless. He's a God of abundance. He loves to bless. He loves to give chocolate. And he doesn't want to be miserable about having chocolate that someone else doesn't have. But he also says, remember the concentration camp where there's no chocolate. And then we're to seek his will as to how we're to live out that balance. So let me return by looking at the passage that, Jesus, that we opened up with, Jesus on the Judgment Day, when he explains to the people they're coming into the kingdom because he says, when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. And when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. And when I was a stranger, you invited me in. And when I needed clothes, you clothed me. When I was sick, you looked after me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. We who are affluent by world and historic standards have got to live in this question. We enjoy the chocolate. It's not our fault we were born into privilege. But we also have to live in this question. If Jesus, in fact, is hungry, thirsty, homeless, naked, sick, and imprisoned right now, how are we ministering to him? Which is to say, how are we laying up treasures for ourselves in the age to come? Because the passage I just read was about... Uh, the, the, the time when we give account. In a world in which one in seven people are starving and a child dies every five seconds, we've got to live in the question individually and with our small groups and with our family and with the broader body of Woodland Hills Church. We live in the question, what does it look like in a world where 
one in seven people are starving, what does it look like to feed a hungry Jesus? In a world where one in six people don't have access to drinkable water, we've got to live in the question, what does it look like to give water to a thirsty Jesus? We enjoy our clean water. Don't feel guilty about that, but don't forget about this question. That's the difficult balance. In a world where half the world is poor and close to one billion live on the brink of starvation, we've got to ask the question, live in the question, what are we doing to provide homes for the homeless Jesus and clothing for the naked Jesus and medical assistance to the sick Jesus and friendship to the imprisoned Jesus? I don't want us to rush to solutions. We've as a nation, as a church, done that before. It's got to be a more nuanced than that. And we're going to be talking about this as, as the series unfolds. Right now, I want to end by just giving a few little baby steps. Here's a little baby step. Don't try to fix the world. Just start with where you're at. But boxes of love. Uh, think about spending some time and some money with boxes of love. What's good about that ministry is that it's just people don't have an anonymous meal show up on their doorstep on Thanksgiving. Uh, rather, it's a church that delivers, they work through churches. And so there's, it's relationship building, and any long-term solution uh, to poverty has got to involve relationships. It's not primarily about the stuff we give, though the stuff is what they need. Um, so, so think about that. Here's another thing. Really ask God about your resources, your finances, and how, and how learn where your money goes. Just become aware of that. Uh, support Woodland Hills Church. We find every year that the number of people with needs who attend here increases and our resources to meet those needs diminishes. You might have noticed that most of the announcements uh, that we had this morning were about poverty issues. Uh, that is just a front burner issue for us, so consider that. And finally, I would encourage you to study and read and learn. Become more aware of this concentration camp on the other side of the forest and right next door. Uh, the book, When Helping Hurts, is a fantastic book. The book, uh, Hole in the Gospel, by Richard Stearns, is a fantastic book. The booklet that we have our, our, our groups going through uh, throughout this series is a fantastic book to take the scripture and, and just internalize it inside. The Ultimate Compassion Conference, I encourage you to go to that. Start learning about poverty issues. Don't think you know about the complexities of poverty. Uh, it's, it's far more complex than most of us realize. And if we're going to effectively address it, we have to know about that complexity. Just study, learn, pray, and submit all things to God. I want to end with a prayer, and when I'm done, I want you to feel free to come forward and pray with uh, our prayer team, or if you just want to pray on your own and seeking God on something, I want you to feel free to do that as well. But Father, we end by just thank you for, thanking you for helping us lower our defenses to let the word in. And now, Lord God, the seed has been sown. Let it bear fruition in our life. Help us to swim upstream in this culture. Help us to keep our eyes open, our nostrils open to the stench of poverty and motivate us and give us wisdom on how to respond to it. We are your people. We submit our lives to you as we go out to do your will in Jesus' name. And all God's kingdom people said, God bless you guys. Go out and build the kingdom.